Whether you like it or not, you own the waiting room. And the idea that somebody dies in your waiting room and has, you have the audacity to say, well, we called them three times, kind of thing. Does not anybody notice that there's somebody there who's just kind of not doing much and over and over in the corner? Maybe you ought to think about going back out and rechecking the guy, even though they haven't put him in a room yet. Well, it's become December here in Michigan, which means it's uh, 12 degrees and there's snow. Rick, of course, is suffering in L.A. at about 65 degrees. We feel so badly for you, Ricky. In fact, they're actually cutting the lawn today, aren't they, for you? <laughs> actually, the gardeners are here, and uh, we're trying to make sure that the blowers don't make uh, any noise on the uh, recording because you got to blow the few leaves that we have. But, yes, the grass, I don't think it needs to be cut this week, but that's they do that. And the other thing is we have our winter rye planted. We plant a whole new lawn uh, for the uh, winter time. It's uh, rye grass, grows quickly, and it and it looks great. And uh, that's what we do here. Yes, I understand <laughs> uh, winter that. Winter rye. Yeah, in Michigan, we don't have to deal with that. We have, we have uh, large... Uh, torches, which we put out and uh, mark mark the trails. Uh, but this is the December issue of Risk Management Monthly for last one of uh, 2019. It's been a busy year. Uh, we had the unfortunate death of uh, your sister, Jerry, who's been was instrumental in making this a success. Um, I had a little medical time off myself. But all we can hope for is for the coming year, Rick, we settle into a little more normal state of affairs. But um, um, I, I, I'm sure we will. So ha Merry Christmas to you and everybody in the uh, California residence. And likewise to you, because you have a very special birthday in, in December. You <laughs> and there's some other person were b born on the same day. On the same day. Christmas yeah. Day, uh, um, uh, Jesus and I share the birthday. <laughs> He's been pretty good about it, though. <laughs> you know, he 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 gives me ten percent of the take, and it's it's okay. We're good. Let me uh, let me start out today with a little uh, a news flash, something to talk about. And I took this out of the Holloway and uh, Hollis newsletter, which I which I get. And it is attention healthcare providers. There are going to be updates this year in both HIPAA and anti-kickback uh, statutes. Why is this important? Because emergency medicine is as deep in this as anybody. What is it? What are they going to do? Well, they've sent out requests for people to write in their complaints of the current HIPAA law and why, we, why are they doing that? And that's because people are starting to feel that it's a little too tight, um, that we can't talk to anybody about anything. We can't communicate with family members. Um, the way the statute is now written, uh, it may, it's overly protective uh, of the patient and their information. And quite frankly, we do need information from other healthcare providers, other hospitals, other emergency departments, that sort of thing. So stay tuned. I'm expecting uh, within uh, six months, they will brought all these thoughts together 
and we should be looking for some at least moderate changes in the HIPAA regulations. Well, there is a move towards a kinder, gentler uh, federal regulations on some of these things. Like they're looking at, and this has been started now in primary care, the CMS uh, charting guidelines, the 1995 yes. charting guidelines where you have to do a family history associated review systems and all those other kinds of things. And uh, I think they're piloting something in primary care family medicine where you the, the requirements would stay for a level five, but for all the others, you could just document what you think you ought to document, like the old days. Well, we're going to come to that uh, later on today in the program, as I looked at with things we're going to look at. The family practice people are looking at this, a few other people are looking at this, Basically, what they've realized is they created a game for everybody to put down as much crap as they could, whether they did it or not, <laughs> and to then adequately upcode and charge um, more for the visit. If you're going to come up with a system like this where you get paid for a lot of junk, what are you going to receive back? A lot of junk. And uh, I think the family practice people are exactly right. Why we went to this initially, I have no idea. Rick. Well, it was all to limit the amount of payment. And uh, <laughs> as, as usual, you know, everything gets gamed. Right. So basically, we came up with macros and uh, electronic systems that played the game as well. And we're going to see a great paper later on that talks about playing the game. But let's get started. All right. Um, holding psych patients. This is uh, from Mark Nevin, who's a PA in Hollis, New Hampshire. He has sent us a indi note indicating that the uh, Boston Municipal Court ruled that es essentially you can't hold people longer than 72 hours who have been put on involuntary uh, commitments. And this is kind of like... Going along with a, a trend, the uh, you get the Kowalski thing that we talked about ad nauseum, where yes. uh, the Court of Appeals in New York affirmed that uh, defendants like hospitals and physicians did not have a duty to prevent the plaintiff, in this case, an intoxicated man, from leaving who subsequently got hit by a car and was killed. And his family uh, went after the uh, hospital and said, you shouldn't have done that, which makes a lot of sense to me is saying you shouldn't have done it. Yeah. Um, and remember, we received an email from somebody saying that you can't do that. You can't hold somebody like an intoxicated person in the ER in Wyoming. You have to let them go out into the minus five degrees uh, because they're intoxicated, which just doesn't make any any sense at all. Um, well, just going back to Kowalski, just to make sure we have it straight, it was the blood alcohol was slightly elevated, but the the nurses and physicians said the patient was competent at that time, carried on reasonable conversation, knew who he was. Uh, and so they sided with the doc at the hospital saying, if the patient seems to be able to make reasonable judgments because he had a slightly elevated blood alcohol did not give you standing to to uh, to take them essentially into custody uh, is to tie them down. They did not constitute a danger at that moment 
uh, to themselves or others. Well, but, I, you don't know ahead. how you don't know how uh, I don't know how much time went by from when this person left the emergency department until they got hit by uh, some kind of vehicle and killed. Right. But but the fact that they got hit and killed may suggest that the judgment of the clinicians about the capacity of this person may not have been exactly what they thought they were. Well, it, it, it was interesting that uh, it came down on our side, at least, in, in defending the hospital, the nurses, the physicians, that uh, in their judgment, he did not uh, constitute enough impairment that he that for the safety of the general public, he had to be um, prevented from leaving. But it it is an interesting question. I'm not sure we're done with this question uh, yet, Rick. And here's why. Uh, we don't have measures to look at everything. Michigan just passed the um, the fact that marijuana can be a recreational drug. So what if you've had two drinks and you've had uh, two joints? We have no way other than the physical examination of documenting any type of impairment, at least with blood alcohol, as poor as that is, at least gives you something. Now that we've got the uh, recreational cannabinoids thrown into this thing, um, this is not going to be a simple question. And I think we're going to be depending on the correct documentation of the physical exam by the nurses and the docs. I just hope everybody's examinations are in line with each other when you decide to prevent someone with, from leaving. Oh, absolutely. You have to create the record consistent with what you're going to do. If you want to hold the person, you've got to create the you hold the person record. And if you want to let them go, you need to create the let them go record. There's no question about that. And you don't want uh, them looking at nurses' notes, which then are undermining your note. And now it looks like you did make a wrong decision. Yes, you have to. We all learn in emergency medicine that the record has to be consistent with the disposition uh, or it may be consistent with the deposition. Yes, the exactly. <laughs> so uh, my sense on this, honestly, is like if you <clears> – <throat> I think you should break the law if you really feel it's necessary that you should do it. I can't envision a doctor in Wyoming taking a person who's grossly intoxicated and and not protecting them themselves from the elements, from whatever it is back in the Wyoming. You might get run over by a freaking buffalo there. Yeah, yes, exactly. And the one thing about a state like Wyoming is there's so little legal action against doctors anywhere. We don't have a case that defines this. You know, we've been following this for a long time, Rick. If, if you don't have a case, if you haven't seen it tried out, you, you have no idea what they're actually going to decide. Now, again, Wyoming has been a fabulous state for physicians. They sue you for essentially nothing there. But uh, you're right. If I was afraid of anything in Wyoming, it's, it's uh, not taking a little initiative and protecting somebody oh, sure. uh, like, who's going to hurt themselves. What's, what's a jury going to say? Yeah, exactly. Just, just trying to help them. Just trying to help them. Yeah, they'll be fine. <clears throat> All right, All right let's go. Um, here's an email from someone who indicates 
that they've been a less uh, listener since the first episode of this program. Oh my God! I wish this person doesn't want us to use his name, but I would like to congratulate him for his steadfastness and loyalty. Well, but, we might also suggest that he needs a psychiatric exam if he's heard every one of these. Listen, are you, you're insulting our, our one listener. Come on. I, I, I understand that. So to this, he, he is talking about the emergency physician uh, is concerned that in-person neurologist or interventionist who is used on all of these remote stroke protocols, um, where does this put us? After all, they haven't been in the room with the patient. Uh, they can say anything they want, but I, I want to pass on three thoughts on this, Rick. Well, what's the now, question first? What are the question we're dealing with? The question is, is if you're using a remote uh, interventionist or, or uh, neurologist, who has the ultimate responsibility here? Um, since they don't uh, actually touch the patient, they don't examine the patient, and no matter what they say, if you just see someone over a screen from the head of one of these robots, it's probably not like being in the room with the patient. But the question is a fair one. Who's in charge here? Um, can you give TPA just based on that? Uh, are you going to send him, transfer the patient? And here's the bigger issue. TPA uh, has a, is a drug which time has probably come and may be going. Because what people really want, the real uh, good outcomes, are associated with people who get arterial studies and then have the clot sucked out of their head. So now... Are they going to tell you it's okay to transfer the patient? Are they going to tell you, no, you should give them the TPA now, not send them to a center? It really has to do with what are you going to do for the patient in front of you? After all, the consultant is only a consultant. They're not in, they're not in charge of the patient at that moment in time, Rick. Well, that, that's what this fellow is talking about. He had it great in the past. In the past, they would come down to the emergency department and take over the care of the patient. Right. They, they would write the orders. They, were, they would do some history and physical kind of thing and get them admitted. But now, this, which is, this is great, it, it, there, there weren't any liability issues there. You would just pass it on to these people, and they ran with the ball, and they gave or didn't give the medications that they saw fit. Right. Now, this person is saying, these people are talking to us over the phone or they're talking to us via this robot. This robot doesn't necessarily, you know, examine them. And even though there is a robot, they don't necessarily have the robot talk to the patient, which is what's the whole purpose of the thing. But in any case, our doctor here is concerned that I'm writing for the TPA now. I didn't, I never had a right for it before. Now I'm writing for it and I'm responsible for it because in order of it's, uh, it's my order. I mean, you know, there's with all of the CPOE now, there are no verbal orders kind of thing anymore. Right. You, you, somebody's got to claim this thing. So uh, that was their concern. And he said that it does this increase our liability? Well, sure, it increases your liability. But is it very much? I don't think it's very much because, you know, we're getting here into a couple of, you know, 
I'd like to call them gray zones, but I don't know that they are because I think the idea of giving TPA for strokes is, is, um, maybe the standard of care. I'm not saying oh, it is. Oh, oh, I, I said maybe, 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 yeah. maybe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that being the case, you've got this neurologist who, who talked to them, but problem is, is that if you just talk to somebody, they're basing their decision on the information that you gave them. They're not right. independently assessing and, 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 and making it. So you, you know that you can get the answer that you want by talking to these people. I would suggest to our to our loyal listener, first of all, we appreciate you staying with us. Number two, if you've spoken to a neurologist, that person's name, not just neurologist, but Dr. So-and-so is written on the chart. Number two, here's the information and here's the discussion we had. Number three, this is what he has decided to do with the patient. It should be clear that the higher standard of care is involved in the evaluation. And if you have a center, and I'll tell you, this is the most rapidly moving area in stroke, is to have 24-hour-a-day places which will do the the, uh, study, the correct uh, angiogram study, and if they see something, not just use TPA, but actually physically remove the clot. So this is not a simple give a drug question anymore. It's do we give a drug now? Do we transfer this patient an hour away? And there's a lot of good data that says the transfer um, is, is worth it. If I had one right now, uh, I don't want the TPA first. I want somebody to go in with a catheter. And uh, if it's in, a, in an area they can get to, I want them to suck it out of my head. Uh, that's the way to go. You know, getting back to this uh, doctor's concern, yes, there you are, you've increased the liability. Yes, you've got the name. You've ordered the drug. And frankly, you've ordered the drug. You've dr- ordered the drug under consultation. And remember, uh, one of the things that I think has been outrageous is that the idea is that you don't need to get informed consent to give TPA because it's the standard of care. Well, you don't need it. You don't, you, you, st- you do get a uh, consent for an appendectomy, don't you? Sure you do. It's a standard of care for appendicitis. Yes, it is, but you still get a consent and you have to consent these patients to the extent that you can. And I think to, if you don't do that, I think that, that it is, it's, it's, Totally improper. Totally yep. improper. Yep. You, you've, you've got to let the patient and their family know what the decision has been. I'll tell you what I do not have in all the time uh, I'm doing these cases. I do not have a case where an emergency doctor is sued when he's on the phone with the stroke neurologist getting information. I've never seen the emergency de- uh, physician sued by himself. Never seen that case. And what that means is there's going to be somebody in front of you. The other thing is, depending on how you have a contract with the hospital, it should state straight out that, uh, that you are part of the protocol is to call the stroke neurologist. And, you know, that will change the dynamics if there's a trial. The stroke neurologist will 
be put forward as the expert on this problem. But you have to be careful because he's going to say, well, you didn't tell me that, you know. Uh, sir, you were on the phone, on the TV. You saw the patient. I would have given you any other information. You know, Rick, I think our guy's in pretty good shape here. You know, you, I agree. I think, yes, does the liability go up? But I still, I think it's not substantial. I think that is, it's um, marginal. I think it's marginal as well. Uh, so there's some thoughts and ideas for you. There's no question that having the higher level of care involved certainly brings somebody in to help pay the bill. Uh, let's do uh, move on to uh, something that I saw in the news. There's a series of articles. Uh, first of all, Randy, Randy Danielson, who is our PA friend extraordinaire. Yes. Uh, this fellow uh, was the um, most immediate uh, editor for clinician reviews on the PA side. Clinician reviews of the publication went out to our PAs and NPs, and they had an NP editor and a PA editor. Randy was the PA editor. In uh, 2015, Randy was the recipient of the Eugene Stead Award, which is the highest award that the American Academy of Physicians Assistant can give out. Uh, a number of years prior to that, he was chosen as the PA of the year by the AAPA. This man, has his contributions to the world of PA in this is uh, extraordinary. Well, in any case, he sent me an article in which a nurse practitioner uh, was taking care of an orthopedic issue in a clinic setting. And this nurse practitioner saw this patient back for multiple visits on a follow-up of this, uh, I think it was a wrist injury. And ultimately this wrist injury didn't heal right. And there was some questions and problems. And at the very end, apparently this person who was the patient thought that this person was the orthopedist all along. Uh, it just never was, never came up. They went to an orthopedist office. The co person comes in in a scrub suit. Uh, uh, they may not have known who the orthopedist was. They just kind of, there's an assumption here that I'm in an orthopedist office. You must be the orthopedic doctor. And so because the fact that it didn't go well at the end, this person said, hey, you know, I was under the assumption that this was a doctor and this is a, a nurse practitioner. And so what happened here, uh, Greg? Did this go to trial? Did this get settled? What was the outcome here? Well, this one actually went to trial <clears throat> and uh, there was $500,000 awarded. Now, in the world of malpractice these days, that's not a huge amount of money, but what it does is set a precedent. This is our second case. You'll remember, Rick, when I talked about the case, I think last year, where the, the nurse had on her coat in the emergency department, she'd gotten a PhD in nursing. And so the coat said on the name tag, Dr. So-and-so. She requested that the other staff referred to her as Dr. So-and-so. Now, for you and I, uh, the, the trial uh, involved putting forth the idea that if you see the term doctor on somebody's coat in a medical setting, it either means MD or DO, but it doesn't mean a nurse PhD. And so 
This has to do with what image what was presented, what were they told, what were they supposed to believe. Um, this is now our second case of this. It, here's my warning. If somebody is not an MD or DO, uh, make sure that the, the labeling of that person reflects their level. Do not have them uh, be addressed as doctor and make sure that the patients understand that they are the assistant to or being supervised by, in this case, an orthopedic surgeon. Um, I, I think there's going to be more and more chance for this kind of, of uh, misunderstanding. I guess that's the politest way of saying it. Uh, as people get more and more degrees attached to being either a, uh, an NP or a PA. Oh, let's back back up uh, here uh, a little a uh, little bit. Yeah, this is uh, of some concern, uh, but there are some states now that have said we've got to address this by some statutes. And so um, I found this that Arizona and Delaware forbid nurses, pharmacists, and other professionals from using the doctor title unless they immediately clarify their role. For example, a nurse practitioner with a doctorate of nursing practice must inform patients that he or she is a doctoral prepared nurse practitioner. Certain facilities or organizations may also have restrictions on the use. So your, your, your hospital can basically uh, restrict people. But you mentioned a, a minute ago about some implications with regarding supervision by physicians and the like. You have to remember, in 23 states, uh, nurse practitioners do not need physician supervision or any kind of relationship with a uh, with a physician. And there's more and more states coming on board. I can tell you that that is brewing in California as well, although it's not been pra- uh, passed as yet. Uh, All right, next. So I think we got that one down. Yeah, the the, uni, the uh, University of Rochester has agreed to pay a $3 million fine to HHS Office of Civil Rights to settle a potential HIPAA violation. The settlement was based on a, a data uh, a breach back in 2013 in which an unencrypted flash drive had been stolen and a second data breach in 2017 when an unencrypted laptop was stolen. So basically, the hospital has responsibility for where that information goes and who has it. And uh, $3 million, uh, that sounds like a lot of money, Rick. Well, basically, they claimed that the university did not have in place uh, enterprise-wide security to uh, to ascertain uh, whether this information is safe. And so they said uh, the university was not was found to not be condu- conducting uh, enterprise-wide risk analysis, implementing security measures sufficient to reduce risk and vulnerabilities to a reasonable and appropriate level, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So basically they said, listen, you've you've screwed up twice here. And yep. you don't have the systems in place that are needed so that, you know, to assure our patients that 
their breach may not occur again. So you got to put this stuff in place. And, and by the way, write a check for $3 million. That's to get your attention. That's to get your attention. We have a, we have a case going on um, in a state which will remain nameless in which one of the pediatric residents was using his university-owned laptop, um, and it's a pediatric uh, resident, to look at child pornography. Now, what the university said was, uh, we can't look at everybody's equipment. We can't do this and that. We, we can't monitor this completely. Uh, the court held a different view of this. They said, this is one of your employees, and he gets a check from the university, and on university time, he's looking at pornography. Uh, you have no system of monitoring or checking for this. Uh, that, hasn't, that case has not come up with its financial rewards yet to, the, to, the, uh, to, to people involved, but... It's interesting that they took a general topic like child porn and said not no specific patient of the universities involved, but said you have an obligation to be checking for this stuff on a university-owned computer. That seemed, It seems a little harsh to me, Rick, but uh, what do you think? You know, um, I don't know. It sounds pretty complex to determine what what people are watching on their computer. Um, yes. Can I go back uh, one second here? And we were talking about DNPs and uh, introductions. And this is a reminder that patients have a right when you walk into the room to know who you are whether and what your role is in their care. Because many times there are students or other people who come in and the, and the patient needs to acquiesce to their being there and their being involved. And so uh, that should be your practice. And I think one of the things that, I think it's just common courtesy when somebody walks in with the, and said, fine, I'm Dr. So-and-so, this, these are two students with, who are with me learning about emergency medicine. Um, I think that that is perfectly appropriate and it should be done. Right. It should be done. You and I both came up in that era where it wasn't done all the time. In fact, as they came into the room, it looked like it looked like the 5000 were following this doctor into the room and everybody had their stethoscope out (laughs) to assault this patient's body. I think you're absolutely right. They should be asked permission Yes. To have train uh, people in training uh, also be involved in their care. It's a common courtesy for crying out loud. Um, right. The other thing I wanted to mention is, and I mentioned it before, and that will really help this issue about uh, who's who, is that you consider that you consider basically giving a, a person a business card when you come in. This is my card. This is, how, this is my name. This is our phone number. You don't have to say those things, but the idea of handing a person a business card, I think is a very courteous kind of thing to do because if you're a, a, a DNP, you can put on there, you know, nurse practitioner and, but DNP after their initials, most patients won't have any idea what a DNP means, but it, they'll, they'll understand that you're a nurse practitioner. So I think that that is a 
smart thing to do. I think it's a a a, a professional thing to do. And it's makes the you ethical. Look, it makes you it's look the good. ethical thing to do that people know who's taking care of them, and I think that's that's the point. Let's talk about risks in the waiting room. Uh, <laughs> These are too much. Yeah, I know they always are. Go Wellspan York Hospital must be York, Pennsylvania. Got into trouble after a patient who came into the emergency department by ambulance at around ten o'clock in the morning with nausea and dizziness. Uh, was triaged and then put back into the uh, waiting room uh, in a wheelchair. The patient was uh, signed out as uh, left without being seen after after not responding to being called three times between 10.30 and noon. And um, the reason that the patient didn't respond is because the patient was there, there but was pronounced dead in the wheelchair at 1.31 p.m. in the afternoon. Uh, you own the waiting room. Whether you like it or not, you own the waiting room. And the idea that somebody dies in your waiting room and has, you have the audacity to say, well, we called them three times kind of thing. Did yep. not anybody yep. notice that there's somebody there who's just kind of not doing much and over over in the corner? Uh, the, the nurses, the doctors, the hospital – you own the waiting room. Yeah, by the way, dying in a in a wheelchair in the waiting room may not be the worst way to die. At least they weren't shoving tubes and wires into them. But I, th- I think that the, the point here is very clear. If you've got somebody who's checked in uh, and when you call them, they're not there, one of two things happened. They left without being seen or the, they're, they're a little different category because somebody at least looked at them on the way in, and so now they've eloped. And you ought to have a procedure that says when you call somebody or let's say you go in the room and they've disappeared, you have something to do each time, which is check, uh, notify uh, security Start looking on the floor. I've had one of these cases, and I pre- we presented it a couple of years ago, where they heard banging about 45 minutes later after they'd written him out as eloped, uh, and he was having a seizure down in the bathroom and was, in fact, they had trouble opening the door to the bathroom because the patient was there having a seizure. At least if you can't find somebody when you call for them, do the usual things. Call the phone number they gave. Look around. Check with security. Maybe they've gone out to have a cigarette. They've done the usual things that happen. But do something to try and find the patient. This is an unfortunate situation because at intervals, uh, you should be checking to see how your patients in the waiting room are doing. This is a problem, Rick. Well, it's good to know that the chief medical officer said that they were redesigning the processes. Oh, that's good. <laughs> I, I, I would, I would think so. Yeah. That so would, listen, that would be you a gotta, good thing to do. You got to be careful about this. These cases are popping up. What What's going to happen when the newspaper gets a hold of this? You're going to look like jerks. Jerks. Uh, yeah. Uncaring. <clears throat> Tell us another one, Greg. All right. Uh, this is from Chuck Pilcher's. Uh, no, no, we we have one out of Ben Tab, Ben Tab's hospital. Oh yeah, can we just hold off on the Chuck thing and we're we're gonna get to that toward the end. I'm sorry. Okay. 
What about this thing out of Ben Taub in the uh, in Houston where they got into trouble? Uh, they had a patient with abdominal pain, loss of appetite, and vomiting, and they were sent to the emergency department. And apparently, the patient had. This is where the the nurses or somebody like that in the front decides to draw some lab work into some process like a, where they have a doctor in triage or something like that where they're and they get this lab work and then they put them back in the waiting room, not an internal waiting room, but another waiting room. And it turns out that the uh, patient's lab work had some critical values, but uh, nobody uh, kind of noticed it. it was just overlooked. Uh, it was a mistake. You know, uh, that's what happened. Well, it's uh, not, not so much just that they had an abnormal value. But the patient was still waiting for hours and hours, and the result of the test had been back for a long period of time, and nobody thought that that ought to move up the process of taking care of this patient. And so I think if you're going to send off a lab, when it comes back abnormal, maybe somebody ought to take a look at it and see what should be done with the patient. Right, so they they overlooked that, and uh, that was unfortunate. They didn't notice the critical value, and um, it was sounds like the patient was considered of left on his own when uh, he didn't respond to being called. Just like the other case, right? All the patient didn't show up. The patient was founded in the hospital's bathroom after checking, uh, after having checked in. So here's a case. You this is a bathroom case. They they died in the bathroom. You, we had another one who died in the wheelchair. You had your case. You know, died had a seizure in the bathroom. Right. You guys got to own this stuff. Yeah, uh, this is this isn't good. And the the bottom line is, if they're sitting there somewhere, and now they they've got a white count of twenty one thousand and. Maybe you ought to think about going back out and rechecking the guy, even though they haven't put him in a room yet. It's very funny how we treat people. It's if if they haven't made it to the room yet, they're not our fault and not our problem. And the public doesn't believe that, Rick. Apparently, Ben Taub had a some kind of other incident that was quote an ineffective process in patient monitoring and communication of critical values also resulted in a uh, bad outcome. So you got to be careful. Yep. Uh, and here's another one. This is a story out of Texas. A 73 year old woman showed up in the emergency department six days after Thanksgiving. And, uh, this is at St. Luke's medical center in Houston. She was given the uh, wrong blood. She was taken, uh, she was mistaken for a patient who had been in the same ER room immediately before her. Uh, and she ultimately died the next day as a result of this mismatch transfusion, which is, it is hard to conceive, honestly, that these that this can occur. Have you ever watched the giving of blood in the emergency department? I mean, 
the safety measures on this are just extraordinary. This is a two-person process where they're both reading the bag, the, the labels on the bag, they're reading the, they're reading the labels on the patient, the name bands, you know, getting a verbal assurance, are you Mr. Jones kind of thing. You would think that they were arming a nuclear missile that the way that they do this with the, all of this these security processes. And, and the idea of a patient getting the wrong blood in uh, 2000 and whatever it is, it's just it's just hard to conceive of. I'll tell you right now, this case won't be tried. This is res ipsa loquitur. The thing speaks for itself. Uh, you do you wouldn't want to put this in front of 12 citizens uh, because bottom line is what Rick just described is what should happen every time. Two people, two identifiers. They have a number. And they have a name, and they have and use the third, their date of birth. Put all those together, and that's what you have to use in my place to get uh, to get blood. Um, and and we don't give as much blood as we used to. Uh, Twenty years ago, I think we were blood happy. We gave a lot more of it. But if these three things aren't happening, um, this is this is a very sad case uh, yeah, because it's it. eas- easily avoidable. CMS investigated and said these guys have been having some issues, recurring issue with blood labeling mistakes during the prior year. Uh, they said, in fact, four days prior, the lab caught a near miss on another um, emergency department transfusion. So a near miss should, should suggest that you have a uh, a big hole uh, in your process. Yes, somewhere. See, I, in all of these cases, in all of these cases, CMS comes in and they don't have a sense of humor about this one whit. No. Uh, I mean, they basically, they have the ability to shut your hospital down and make everybody in the executive suite there very, very, very nervous. Right. So you got to be careful uh, with lab ordering and, 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 and looking at those critical values and the people in the waiting room are, are your people. You know, I, I sometimes these places are so busy that a person who arrives by ambulance is considered, ah, you don't really need to be in a bed kind of thing here. And we're tied up and there are no beds anyway because we're holding 25 patients. So here, sit in, we'll get your wheelchair, you sit in, in the uh, waiting room. And that, you know, these are sure, these are, what's the denominator here? The denominator is freaking huge, huge. But- <laughs> You're not supposed to die in a waiting room. Right. You're you're not supposed to die there. Uh, uh, Again, I was starting to talk about Chuck uh, Pilcher's uh, medical practice insights, which we quote all the time. He again in the November issue. I don't know how many times Chuck has reported this now, but it seems like there is a an absolute deluge of these uh, uh, epidural abscess cases which make it to Chuck. The bottom line is all of them look the same. Uh, They're febrile. They've got back pain. Now, if they're also a drug shooter, it makes it a little easier. But you know what? Back pain and a fever and any neurologic symptoms is what till proven otherwise, Rick. Yeah, we got an infection someplace there. Yeah, you got an infection somewhere. And... uh, this is another but, one of those big cases that doesn't go well. 
yeah, they you you pretty much you're going to lose them all. Um, and these are generally involved multiple visits uh, where where other clinicians kind of miss it as well, and you're just kind of the last one to to miss it. So you got got to be careful because you know so many of these musculoskeletal kinds of things. Well, I must have hurt my back. I was working in the yard. That's probably why my back is sore kind of thing. And with all of these people on steroids and all of these MABs for psoriasis and ulcerative colitis and you name it, MAB, uh, with all of the hardware that people have in now that they didn't have in before walking around, uh, the, these things are going up and, and we're consistently missing them because I think well, I shouldn't say consistently. We're missing them enough to the point where these are very high on the list of high-dollar uh, suits against us. So, By the I, you way, know, one you... of the things I, th- I was thinking of doing, Greg, is I just saw the list again of what about were the maybe the ten most specific common causes of suits, and I was thinking maybe we had to do an issue where we just kind of delve, delve into each one of them. Cause it's one of those things where I think if you know, these 10 diagnoses, it's not likely that you're going to get into trouble. Uh, but maybe we can uh, plan for that in the coming year. Yeah. You made, you made an interesting reference to the fact that everybody and their uncle. And if you watch TV at, uh, at night, there is going to be an UMAB the last four letters at the end of so many drugs these days, given for everything from migraine headache to uh, to uh, psoriasis. You know, to, you know, psoriasis, bowel, uh, skin lesions, all kinds of things. Uh, whenever you see that on the on the bottom of their drug list, somewhere in the drug list, just assume that they're immunologically compromised. And they can have an infection somewhere. It's like the night, the day. Uh, five years ago, I wouldn't have said this, but in the last five years, the number of UMEBs has gone crazy. It's it's occupying, you know, half the advertising uh, dollar uh, on television. Uh, I, would, I would say that uh, it is almost exclusively what is a, a marketed on TV, because once you get on one of those, you're talking about 10, 20, thir- uh, $30,000 a year for it. Uh, if you are going to be it on it that long. Yeah. So these are, these immunologic drugs are a um, big deal and, and are the cancer drugs. I mean, the uh, pharmaceutical companies are not interested in, you know, making a lot of money now on antibiotics or blood pressure pills or any of this other kind of stuff. They're going for the jugular and the cancer drugs and the immunologic drugs are the are the big boys now. Where the money is, right? Okay, Rick, you got a you got a subject coming up now which none of us like because you have to define uh, who the older physician is. Now, I think I'm just a kid, but uh, that's not the thought out there. And this idea of cognitive testing for all of us old guys isn't going to sit well, Rick. Well, this is an article from Medscape. It was published uh, June 26, 2019. But um, the author is Arthur Kaplan, who is a Ph.D., in the Division of Medical Ethics at New York University School of Medicine. And um, he talks about 
uh, cognitive testing, and um, he describes a colleague of him who was a physician, and they were involved in an educational project, and uh, they had been friends for a long time and worked together for a long time. And he noted that over time that this physician was just getting a little slower. Short-term memory was an issue, and his vocabulary was shrinking. See, on that basis, every orthopod that becomes uh, a <laughs> potential problem here. Uh, we, you know, when you're when you're only speaking in monosyllables anyway, I mean, it's a problem. Well, he he brings up um, when does this cognitive testing start? Is it should it be done? And he catch this. He said, sixty-five, seventy, or even seventy-five. Quote or even seventy-five. Yeah. Like. Like, yeah. you know, that's obviously off the chart. You who know. is, who is this kid? We need to take him out and slap him. Was, this is no good. But in any case, um, he turned in his colleague. Uh, he basically told the colleague supervisor that um, he had some concerns. And they then uh, basically monitored his work and ultimately agreed and removed this clinician from frontline patient care, uh, he retained his professorship and um, he was just doing non-clinical work thereafter. Uh, the Dr. Kaplan who wrote this said, you know, I didn't tell him that I was the one who turned him in kind of thing, otherwise known as the whistleblower. Right. Are you familiar with that whistleblower going yeah, on? Yeah, right yeah, yes. This, this day is rather historic because it's December 12th. 2019, the uh, day that the uh, le- uh, the uh, legislature, the uh, House House of Representatives, is uh, voting now to impeach the president. But in any case, this other than this being a famous day, we'll move forward. So he basically ultimately told his friend that he had suggested there may be some issues, and um, he basically concluded, "I support." The idea of cognitive testing. Now, issues about who uh, is tested and where they're tested and how they should be tested and what age they're tested. He says you can argue all about that, but let's. He said let's get past the objection that says it's age discrimination to do cognitive testing on you at a certain age. So you're not going to be able to play the age card here, Greg. Well, everybody does this differently. The airlines raise the age at which you can continue to fly a commercial airplane from 60 to 65. But they don't wait till you have a problem. They just say at age 65, you turn in your 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 badge and you can't fly the plane anymore. And th- remember, these are people who every couple of months have a physical examination to keep flying, but they're not gonna wait for a problem. The uh, operating engineers, these are the guys who run the big cranes and that sort of thing. They have some similar rules as well. Not only do you have to have uh, physical exams, vision exams, all that sort of thing, but at age at age 62, I think it is, you got to give up running the big cranes. Now, if you did that with us in medicine, people would go crazy. Funny, the rest of the public seems to handle it for airline pilots and people running cranes. Um, 
I don't know. I think it's coming, Rick. And, you know, you and I are well into our 70s. Uh, you know, should they should they stop us from doing this anymore? Well, I did tell you that one of my friends in Orange County here, their hospital, which is a very large hospital, I think it was the uh, children's hospital down there where they were doing cognitive testing on uh, the medical staff, the emergency physicians. So, it, yeah, I think that, and I don't think it's unreasonable kind of thing. I, I really don't. I, yes, if you, I don't think you should wait till there's a problem. And, or or wait till you're going to be turned in by some of your your colleagues down the road who may feel very reluctant to pull the plug on you or or, or alert you. And they also said that this is cognitive thing. This is a screening test, and this is just one part of the decision making process with regards to your capacity as a physician. So yeah, if you flunk a screening test, then they're going to give you you know more assessment to ascertain. Uh, your level of uh, dysfunction, you know. <laughs> yeah, basically what they've told uh, you, um, if they told you you're going to have a series of screening tests now because the first one is bad, my first phone call would be to my financial advisor <laughs> to see if my retirement plan was set up correctly. Well, you know, I've been told I'm at about 82% right now. Yeah. You know, well, I was at a hundred percent when I was 50, but I'm, I'm at 82%. I don't know where they cut the line off here. Yeah. But listen, uh, I've listened to both of us for years. We're certainly not above the 85% level in, in anything. Um, next we've got the, uh, electronic medical records. Uh, we've bitched about this for years, but, uh, this is a, this is a fa fabulous study, Rick. This is electronic clinical documentation and physicians observe behavior. Uh, and this is a great article. And basically, and by the way, it, it's done by friends of ours. I, I suppose we have to admit that up front. But uh, Greg Moran, Dave Schreiger, uh, Carl uh, Bergdahl, and, and other friends of ours are involved in this. And what it is, this is an article that appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, September 2019. So this is hot off the press here, Rick. You you, you got this right time. Yeah, I, I, I kind of tracked this and I thought this has to, this is a, this is a terrific article. And I really um, am, I'm stunned a little bit that um, Dave Schreiger and, uh, they, uh, Greg Moran would um, have thought of participating in such a great study because it, it's, a, it's one of those studies that... Wait a minute. They do great studies. Uh, who I, I understand what you're saying, but let's clarify this. Uh, these guys do great studies. These are very good studies. Well, science. this is the study in which you may, sh may show that your institution is um, uh, not exactly... Uh, up to snuff. And there have been right. a number of papers uh, regarding, you know, the, uh, particularly Brigham and women's hospital where they looked at their doctors and the gross variation in, in the use of CAT scans there, uh, et cetera. And so this is a great paper. And I think one of the cool things about this paper is they would not tell you where, what hospitals, the, uh, were involved that there were two emergency departments involved in this in this uh, study, 
Yeah, and we're, we're going to be generous here and not mention any names. But the goal of the study was to quantify the percentage of emergency physician documentation on the review of systems. Now, everybody writes down the same thing. Uh, review of systems, uh, 12 done uh, and, and uh, no abnormalities found. Uh, it's it's what it's what people do. And on the physical exam, people just say, you know, uh, chest normal, blah, 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 blah. They followed residents at two institutions and shadowed them. People watched and they gave them some other reason why they were doing yeah, it. Yeah, they said it was a time and motion study. <laughs> and so yeah. they uh, they weren't aware of why this was being done. And they were shadowed by faculty and other people right. were trained and verified to be able to ascertain whether questions regarding the review of systems were specifically asked and whether uh, parts of the physical were in fact performed. Right. And, and at the end of this, they're able to follow uh, 20 interactions for each physician. Now, I think they started out with 12 and they ended up with nine because three of them at the end of this, when they were told why they were being observed, wanted to be removed from the study. Right. This was about your documentation, what you were observed to do and what you documented you did. Yeah. And uh, so they they focus on two things, review of systems and the physical exam. So how did they do on the review of systems? Um, what was their, for the, uh, all of these patients, what was the, uh, was it the average or the median? I think it was the median. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Was it, uh, um, yeah, I think it was the median. Yeah. Of the 14 systems, maybe they got half of them <laughs> and, and, and it w was not, what you would think it would be. I mean, we're not talking about uh, mediocre, small. This is big time uh, training programs in emergency medicine. And if there's 14 parts of the review of system, you know, you'd expect them to get like 12 or 11 or 10, but you got to keep going down here. And they didn't do as well as you think they would do, Rick. Well, they, the median, the median for these 20 exams done uh, by nine doctors, each did 20 exams. We're talking about 180 exams. The median was 14. The maximum that you can do is 14. Uh, so the, what they did is they checked the box, all of the systems check, uh, uh, reviewed and negative because negative. in fact, when they actually, and they recorded these histories and physicals being done, and they listened to the review of systems. The median number of systems that were actually covered were five. Right. Five, they, five out of the 14. Five right. out of 14. Yeah. So they basically lied on the other nine because they didn't examine them. Uh, and that's number one. And down, getting down to the physical, the uh, they documented that they did eight things on the physical when in fact they did five and a half yeah. and, and by documenting 14 review of systems and eight physicals, all of these from the point of view of a review of systems and PE qualified for a level five exam. Didn't matter whether you had a stub toe 
or a, a spear through your chest. You got a level five in terms of those two components. Now, obviously, those two components alone will not generate a level five in reality in terms of whether this chart is worthy of a five, not no, not, not the chart, the patient's care was worthy of a five. But basically, they documented um, what, they, what these guys called it was these findings, they're talking about these were inconsistencies. They used the word inconsistencies. They're, they're polite, Rick. They're I polite. would use the word like fibbing. I would use the word like uh, fabricating. I would use the word like lying. Well, in, 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 in the South, we call that joshing. They were joshing you here. And, and that's all right. But the bottom line is it's a view toward what the billing code will be and not what the care of the patient will be. And there was no indication here that the patient got worse care or did worse. Uh, this is strictly a record-keeping phenomena. And that's, that's unfortunate. Um, the authors conclude that there were, quote, inconsistencies, quote, between what was observed and what was recorded. They therefore said these findings raised the possibility that some documentation may not accurately represent physicians' actions. Are you serious? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and they said payers should consider removing financial incentives to generate lengthy documentation. And that's exactly what we talked about before, where CMS is saying, Maybe we should get rid of this sham kind of thing when, because we these people proved that even at a training program, residents are grossly uh, making oh, inconsistencies. Yeah, overstating, in overstating what was actually done. Oh, God. Oh, God. All right, next. Uh, in the last th three months, we've been reporting – on the findings from the uh, uh, Covery study uh, and their recommendations. So let's go back to this study and its recommendations based on their review of over 1,300 ED closed claims. That's a lot of claims. That's a lot of closed claims. We, we got through three sections in, the, in our previous um, issues. We talked about arrival and transport and triage and waiting room. Uh, and then we started on the fourth area, but we just got into it, started to get into it. And that had to do with the treatment room. We've, uh, we, we've uh, looked at their recommendations and pretty much agree with them. Uh, and for a detailed look, you have to check out the actual report, but let's go back to the treatment room. Uh, Rick, what are they recommend? What are the recommendations here for uh, risk management recommendations improving diagnostic accuracy in the treatment room itself? Well, you know, uh, and let me just go back a second. They we did cover their recommendations regarding the waiting room, and we had a right. number of papers today about why why yes. why you ought to be paying attention to your waiting room. I, I, they also went into the pre-hospital phase and I think that uh, I forget what the other phase was, but now they're getting down to where the rubber hits the road because our mistakes in emergency medicine. Now, remember these guys insure not only physicians, but they insure hospitals. So they're, they've got both sides of the equation. 
so they're making recommendations not only that are specific for physicians, but also relate to processes and procedures in the hospital that you're going to keep you out of trouble. And um, honestly, Greg, I don't know that we're going to have a lot of time to get through very much of this, but let's go and take it slowly and, you know, we'll pick it up, uh, pick it up later. The, the issue here is in the waiting room is where the diagnostic errors occur linked up to some issues also, which we'll talk about a bit later regarding lab and and, 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 and imaging. Right. And, and one of the things they picked up in the treatment room is that the history and physical, although we initially do, everybody's trained to do the initial history and physical, the redo examinations are almost never recorded. I mean, you may have been into that room five times, felt the belly five times, but it's not actually recorded on the chart. So yeah. history and physicals, uh, although the initial one may be spectacular uh, on the paper, as we learned in the last study, good on paper, not in actuality, but it's the repeats and the intervals of follow-up, which are highly variable. Yeah, I think that this issue of going back in periodically, first of all, the patients expect it. You know, you can't let them sitting there for an hour uh, uh, waiting for something. I mean, you could just bop your head in and saying, we are, uh, how are you feeling? And um, we're waiting for the results of your five CAT scans that I ordered kind of thing. But right. So, so after you saw them, you told them, well, here's the plan. We're going to give you some medicine for your pain. We're going to check out your blood. We're going to get a, a, a CAT scan of this body, body part. So that's kind of the game plan. But then you have to go in periodically. And I just reviewed a case, a really serious case. And it's virtually impossible to see what the doctor thought of during the, this patient's five-hour stay in the emergency department because there are no interval progress notes of consequence, and you have to rely on the nurse's notes, and uh, they're kind of scant as well, and the outcome was very, very bad. And it's kind of like, had they only taken the effort to say, how the patient was doing, was the patient still in pain, any of those kinds of things to kind of, you know, paint the picture of what was going on. Um, so there's two things. Medically, you need to do it to cover your butt. Um, and secondly, the patient's expected. You're going to go and pop in and, and check them out and, and say how they're – and talk to them every once in a while. Right, entertain them in some way, shape, or form. Exactly. The The bottom line here – was that every case we discussed earlier in this session is reflected in their recommendations, i.e., when you're drawing labs, label them at the bedside. Don't take the last six patients, take them to the front and label them there. Do it so you can't make a mistake. Uh, you need to have some sort of protocol for managing what's happening between the healthcare providers, the docs, the nurses. If the nurse puts down that the pain is a seven, is there a, at, at this moment in time, what has the doctor done to do something with that? Uh, you shouldn't put something down there, which, is, which indicts you to take care of their pain, and then you do nothing about it. 
it's just not useful. The second point that they make, and I'm a big believer in this, is using clinical decision support tools. Uh, and when we talk about tools, I mean, that's kind of like, we're not really talking about tools. We're talking about things like the PERC score, like the heart, the heart score, things that have been validated to cover. And if you use them, you will cover your butt because if you say this person is PERC negative, well, then the workup is over. If the person is, you know, you know, got a heart score of three or less, then the workup is over kind of thing. And is, is it going to take care of every case? You know, is there going to be one in a thousand that, that it misses up? Yeah, that may be, but you, you can fall back on it. And you did a thorough job. You did the best that could be expected of you. And I used this validated uh, decision tool to help me in the uh, management of this patient. For yeah, most of the cases that I see of missed PEs, uh, it's not that they did or didn't follow a, sc- a scoring system. They follow no system. Right, exactly. I mean, we can fight about which is the ideal system to use, but have something. Give me something that's been validated so that we can at least talk uh, that you are moving in the right direction. But I, I pick out the PE question only because that's one where we do miss it. Uh, and uh, I, I've never seen somebody lose a case on a PE who actually used one of the systems, <laughs> went down it, and said, well, you know, they don't really meet the criteria. I've not seen that case yet. You know, it's like chest pain is equals heart score. Yeah. That's that's probably the one that the medical community is most uh, gravitating towards now. And so we, I don't know why you wouldn't. And as a matter of fact, in the case that I reviewed, they had the heart score embedded into the chart. And basically, in this case, the heart score was less than three. Um, and so that was great. I thought that, that, that helped a lot. It didn't help the outcome, but, um, and in fact, if, if any case, it, it kind of showed that the diagnosis that the doctor was thinking about was in fact wrong, but I liked it. It was embedded into the chart, the well score, the Geneva score. I, we don't care which one it is. We just like, yeah, there are some that are maybe better than others and some that are more popular than others. I mean, you talk emergency medicine, virtually everybody's going to know what the perk score is for crying right. out loud. You have to use something to guide you in terms of the ordering of expensive tests. Um, and so clinical decision support things are really getting very, very common. And there's this thing called MD-Calc. I don't know uh, if you've heard about it, but it has all of these scores and you should just kind of get familiar with it. It's you put it on your telephone as an app and it'll tell you, you know, what are the components of the, uh, uh, of the uh, heart score. It will t- tell you what are the rules for uh, getting a uh, CT uh, of the uh, head in kids using the PCARN score for kids under two who bumped her head. You're not going to remember what they are, but they're, but they've been hugely validated and they should help you. And they got, do you know the PCARN rules for kids over two? No, it's in MD calc. Yeah, right. Exactly. And, uh, I think what you're going to see is just more in this is going to be happened because 
are they 100%? No, and they shouldn't be 100%. But they should be enough to bring you to an area where you feel comfortable about the workup you've done. And, and that's really what these tools are, is, is management and what's reasonable to do under the circumstances. A lot of these have a lot of, of European influence in them as well. The Brits aren't as quick to do CTs and, and do a study for your pulmonary embolus, but they, they believe in doing uh, a Wells score or something, a modified Wells. Uh, and if you do that, like I say, I've never seen a case went against an emergency doc who did one of these for a PE. You know, the other thing is I found one recently that we're dealing with the febrile kid. And the idea is uh, where is the source of this fever? And source unknown fever cases can be a an issue. And uh, right now it's like, well, is it in the urine? And it's a and all of these little kids are getting catheterized for their urine, you know, because they are. And I think that that's a big mistake. But in any case, there is a risk calculator, which has been validated by out of the University of Pittsburgh called UTI Calc. You can get UTI Calc and uh, uh, look it up. It, UTI Calc basically will give you the factors that will determine, is this kid at low risk for having a UTI? If yep. they're at low risk for having a UTI, maybe you're gonna think twice about, you know, pursuing a catheterization in a little kitty uh, or, or getting a urine in a, in, in a little kitty. So that's a help as well. So I think we'll, we can stop here. We didn't, uh, we didn't get very far into this, <laughs> but we'll pick it up next time. Uh, it's always there, there's lots more of it. Uh, I think that, you know, it's always a filler if we run, start running out of stuff. So, Greg, what do you got for a wine of the month? Do you have anything for us? Yes, I, I do, as a matter of fact. And I decided, uh, since while I'm watching TV looking for the next Umab drug, which I ought to know about, uh, they also have other ads this time of year. And they had one for a new wine out of California. Uh, now, I, I try not to be influenced by these things. There's one called Josh. You've probably seen it. Uh, and a guy is talking about how his father influenced him and the wine is named after his dad, J-O-S-H. Uh, and in the state of California, to call something a, a, a cab uh, you've got to have 51% or more of that grape in it. So they have, of course, obviously they're more select, more expensive wines, uh, which Rick never has an interest in, in. He wants something in a cardboard box and squeezable, that sort of thing. But this new Josh, I said, I'm going to taste it. I went to the store, bought their basic red wine which means it's going to be a blend. But let me tell you, um, I was a little disappointed. California makes, as far as I'm concerned, some of the best wines in the world, no question about it. Here's the problem. They rushed this one coming out. So it, it says on the label, um, 2017 or 2018 uh, mixture of various grapes, 
and it's too early, too young. So my review on Josh is for a little more money in that line, you can buy their actual varietals, their, their uh, Cabernet, the this or that. Those they've taken more time with. I'm sorry. I, this, is the, this is the first time I've written a trashy review of a California wine. But Josh is too young. I bet if you buy that same wine in three years, it's going to taste terrific. But don't be bowled over by the advertising. Um, sometimes it's worthwhile to spend a little more money and get a little better wine. Hey, what does this wine cost? I mean, you're talking about... Is 14 like bucks a bottle, Greg. 14 so That's for the, I'll, that's I'll for the that Josh. Out. Okay, that's... And, and by the way, Costco has it. Uh, so uh, you will be able to, in, in your usual strolling of the aisles, be able to find this wine. Well, we're headed down to Scottsdale for uh, Christmas. Mm -hmm. uh, where they have the Costco, which is by far my favorite Costco. Uh, it caters to the Scottsdale crowd, wow. uh, which is the silver-haired rich people. Yes. And, um, I know some of those. Be nice. They sell more wine at that Costco. That's the biggest-selling wine Costco there is. And my brother, Mark, I, I mentioned this once before. He went down there with me. And he was just blown away by this place. And he is into wine to some degree. And he was just in heaven, you know, strolling the aisles there. Anyway, Greg, uh, I wish you a happy holiday. I, I, I wish you a Merry Christmas. And I wish you a happy birthday. And I, I wish you have lots more. And I wish I don't have to fly to De uh, Detroit next year to come visit you in yeah. uh, the Mercy <laughs> Hospital there. Yeah, no, you've 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 already gotten your one time in, and so uh, your next trip will be for the memorial <laughs> service. <laughs> Greg, you're a character. Okay, see you guys. Risk Management uh, Monthly for December 2019. Signing off. We'll see you next year.